some things in life that when they appear, they change everything. So you may think about this, and maybe you haven't had that moment yet, but some of you, I think you can relate to this. Um, when, uh, you know, in high school, I dated a lot of girls. My wife will tell you that. And uh, then she showed up, and I was like, this is something weird. In fact, I told my roommate, because I, tr- I tried not to date her, okay? And she still gives me grief about that. And I tried not to date her. And she had all these ladies in our church praying that we would date someday. And then, and then so finally, we got to the thing. I was going to, like, cut it off and then say we went to the Waffle House, because that's where you break up with people, I guess. We weren't even dating that I thought. She thought we were dating. So I, went, I was going to break it off once and for all. And we sat down. And then I, somehow I, we left as a couple. And I'm like, what happened? But once she appeared in my life, then everything kind of just changed. And you may have been when a child was born, yours or a grandchild or somebody that was born, and all of a sudden now, hey, this, this person has appeared in my life, and it's no longer the same. It might have been when you first found your love of sports, and then there's never, once you found fishing, nothing has ever been the same, okay, including your bank account. Um, it could be that you, once you found that person, once you found that, once, once that person appeared in your life, a, a new baby, or a child, a grandchild, or a, or a hobby, or a love, when that thing appeared in your life, nothing was ever the same. And Paul talks about the grace of God appearing in Titus chapter 2, verse 11, where we're going to be today. And I want us to understand this, that when the grace of God appears in your life, things change. Let me just say that again, because we're doing this Titus series, and all the, the... The whole push of the book is that understanding doctrine, understanding the gospel of Jesus Christ makes a difference in your life. That is what, that's what the whole book is kind of leading to. And in this particular instant, he talks about this doctrine is understood as the grace of God and it's the work of Jesus. And so we're going to be in Titus chapter two, starting in verse 11. And if you, if you have been here previously, what's happened is he's laid out all these characteristics of different people in the church. Older men, younger men. Older women, younger women. Even those who are in servitude, how they ought to behave. And then he kind of gives us the basis of why we should have Christian behavior. The basis of why it's the grace of God appearing in our life. So in Titus chapter 2, and if you don't have a copy of God's word in front of you, it'll be on the screen. Titus chapter 2 verse 11 says this. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. Now, in this very opening verse, he talks about Paul talking to Titus. He says, for the grace of God has appeared. Now, what is he talking about when the grace of God has appeared? Well, if you go down in verse 13, he says this, waiting on the blessed hope, the appearing and the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. So there has been two appearings, or there's been one appearing of Jesus and one coming appearing. And that is this, when Jesus comes the first time, that was when the grace of God 
appeared. Not that the grace of God was not there. Remember, Jesus was co-eternal with the Father. And if you look in the Old Testament, a lot of people, when you think the Old Testament, you think of God that is not full of grace. That's for people. People think that when they don't read the Bible. Because here, let me give you like a little, there's a cycle that happens in the, in the Old Testament. God's people are in trouble. First off, God chooses people not because they're great, just because he does, okay? That's just God. He's got that prerogative. You may not have that prerogative, but God does, okay? And I'm not trying to go like old school, my prerogative. This is God's prerogative, okay? And so he has the right and the ability. So he picks this people, okay? He always picks, he, first off, he starts with Abraham. And you know who Abraham is? He is just the guy. He's Abram then, he becomes Abraham. And you know what? Abraham screws up all the time. In fact, they get to a, there's one story where he gets to a situation in which uh, he, uh, the, there's a king, it's the Egyptian king comes and he's like, tell, hey, he goes to Sarah and he's like, his wife, he's like, hey, um, pretend to be my sister. Why? I'm going to give you to Pharaoh to have his way with you so he won't kill us. What? Can you imagine that conversation happening in your house? Not going to go well. But what does God do? He has grace on Abraham. Then the people of Israel, you know what they do? God redeems them out of slavery in Egypt. You know, the whole Exodus story. And you know what they do? They never struggle again. They never try to go back to Egypt, but they never try to worship false gods. No, that's not how they do it. They continually, it's this cycle. God, help us. We're in trouble. God shows up in a mighty way, which is all grace, and he saves his people. And then you know what happens? God... I remember when we were in Egypt, we had good food. And all we have now is this manna that you give from heaven. And then Moses leaves. You know what we should do? Let's get all of our gold that they gave us in Egypt as a way of saying, get out of here. And let's make an idol out of it. And they do. And they worship it. And then God comes and he says, what are you doing? And he disciplines them. And then what does he do again? He loves God. Is, his, the grace of God has appeared. But disappearing, the, the full appearing of the grace of God the first time was, was when he came as the God man to earth. We celebrate it at Christmas time. It's the, called the incarnation. It's when God comes to earth. So what Paul is initially referring to here in Titus 2 is this. The grace of God has appeared in the person of Jesus. And so the basis of our behavior, which he mentioned before, of our good works is not, I'm going to do good so that God will love me. And we, that's, that's our default posture. Even those of us who believe in grace and believe in that we are saved by grace alone through faith alone, we can get to the place where I am trying to earn God's approval and favor. No, here's what happens. Good works come out of a heart that is trusting in God's saving grace. And grace is this that while we were yet sinners and deserving of nothing but judgment, Christ died for us. We got something good when we deserved punishment. That is, see, in my house, when we talk about grace a lot, because I, 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 don't, all, I don't want to just have the merciful thing. I want grace to be there. So sometimes, not all the time, because there's a room for, for, for discipline and all those things, but sometimes when Judson's acting a fool, and he's not here today, so I can say that because he'd get on to me if I said it. Now, don't tell him I told you this, okay? And hopefully he'll never listen to this. But when he's acting a fool and we're supposed to go do something and I'm just ready to drop the hammer, usually what I do is I will have that conversation 
and then the tears go because he's a he's a soft hearted kid right now, thank God. And so when you just got a firm talking to him, and then he'll, I'm sorry, Dad, I didn't mean to do that. And and I said, and I would tell him, I was like, listen. And sometimes we follow through, and we say, hey, you said we said we we're going to go Dave and Buster's, or we're going to do this. We're not going to do that now. And sometimes that's just the law. You do this, it's wrong. But sometimes, just because we want to put grace in our family, this is what we'll do. We'll say, you know what? You don't deserve that. But I don't deserve God's love for me either. And so we're going to give you grace. You know what you did is wrong, but we're going to give you grace and we're going to still go. And we try to have that concept in our house. We don't do a good job of it all the time, but we want to have that concept because God is gracious, giving us good when we deserve punishment. And the grace of God here is related to Jesus Christ. We see that in verse 13. It's connected to his appearing, the Savior's appearing. So we get this. For the grace of God has appeared in the first coming of Jesus, bringing salvation for all people. Now, don't misunderstand this. This is not mean that all people are saved because that would preclude, if all people are saved through the work of Jesus, no matter what they do, no matter where they are, no matter if they repent or believe, then the whole New Testament and the whole mission of the church is moot. There's no reason to preach or do anything because everybody's good. But that's not what this verse means. What this verse means is when God's grace appeared in Jesus, when he came and he lived a perfect life that we couldn't live and he died a death on a cross that was a substitute for us when he rose, that finished work is God's grace and it should be preached to all people and it's an offer to all people. It's a good preaching to all people. It's an offer that through the blood of Jesus, all who believe will be saved. If you repent of your sins and trust Christ, you will be saved. And that's what we see here is, is this, that the grace of God, when it appeared in Jesus, it brings this offer of salvation, this preaching of salvation to all people. You know, all, you know who all people are? All people. So the gospel is a, is a free offer to all persons. Doesn't mean all will respond. God knows who will respond. God is working to save those who he, have, he has chosen. But there is a call that goes out to everyone. So you know what? When you're sitting in line or you're driving a car and the person next to you is an idiot and they've been swerving in and out of the lanes and texting while they're driving and you want to punch them, you got to remember this. The gospel offer is for that person too. The gospel offer is for the person that's trying to pass you in the no pass lane on 231 or, 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 or 10. I have to preach this to myself all the time. That, that the offer salvation is even for that moron, Okay. The offer of salvation, the good news, bringing salvation to all people is offered to the person at the restaurant who's taking your order, the waitress or waiter who's not good. That's offered to them. It's offered to every person on the planet. Salvation is a free gift and it's an offered gift. Now, God is in control of salvation. He is sovereign over it. But that does not mean the offer should not go to everyone. A free, good offer. When the grace of God appears, it should be offered to everyone. So the basis of our behavior and our, our salvation and the way that we should live is grace. Grace. God's grace appeared in Jesus Christ the first time when he came in his perfect life, death, burial, and resurrection. Not just to save, though, but to train. 
Now, we don't think about that. Look with me in verse 11 of, of Titus chapter 2. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people. This offer of salvation in Christ through his finished work is to be to all people when the grace of God appeared in Jesus' first coming. And then verse 12 says, training us. Now, we do not think about grace and training. Usually we think about God's grace in salvation. But here we see a connection between the grace of God and the way God trains us. Now, what does it mean to be trained or to train someone? You know this, you've seen this. To train someone is to, or to train something or an animal or something is to get them to do what they ought to do, to get them to behave as they ought, to get them to do what you want them to do. So the grace of God and God's grace is good. It's goodness to us. So he's not going to train us to do something we should not do. His training, when his grace appears, it comes along with training. He's training us. So let's take this. When you have an animal, when you get a dog, what do you got to do? You got to train the dog. We have a dog trainer that goes to our church. She's a dog trainer to many people, and she is a very good dog trainer. And so she has these ways to get the dog to behave as they ought. You can do the same thing. It's not the exact same thing, okay, because you're going to treat them differently um, when you have to potty train a child. Man, that's a weird thing. Like, when, I ha- when you have a kid before you, like, know, like, when we had the little baby, I was like, oh, this is great. And then you realize there's stuff that goes along with that, like diapers. You're like, oh, that's not great, okay? And then there's the spit up. You're like, oh, that's not great either, okay? But then they're super cute, and then you love that thing, but then they make this terrible mess, and then you realize at one point you have to teach this child to stop using the diaper and to start going potty in, and you say stuff like potty, which as a grown man, when you say potty, it's uncomfortable to say that word. And then you're out in public or you're at work and you say, I'm going to the potty. And everybody looks at you like, what? And you have to train that child and how it should be because you don't want them in sixth grade with a diaper on. Or you train them how to ride a bike. You train them how to do these things. And so here's the good news. The gospel, the grace of God, which is the finished work of Jesus, which shows that he loves us when we don't deserve it, Once it appeared, it brought salvation to everybody. And for those who believe, it begins to train us. So let me get you get this. If you are saying that you have trusted in the finished work of Jesus, which is God's grace to us, and there is no sign in your life that God is training you and moving you towards holiness, that is not compatible with a view of grace. Grace is... And training. Saving grace also comes with training grace. Because that's what Paul says here. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation to all people. And this grace is training us to do a few things. First off, it's the negative thing. The grace of God is, cha- is training us to do something in a negative sense. It's good for us, but it's negative in nature. It means this, to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions. So the grace of God is coming in. When he saves us, he is training us through his grace to do a couple of things. And the first part is this, is to renounce godliness, which renouncing is, you probably have not used the word renounce this week. If you have, come talk to me afterwards because I want to hear how you use that word because it's not normal. But what if we took it as deny? 
And I think that's probably as a similar translation of this word. So you deny ungodliness. And that is not to deny a bent in us toward even the, those people who have come to, to salvation, have come to a new heart through the grace of Jesus. We still struggle with ungodliness. But the grace of God has come into our life and is working within us through the Holy Spirit to get us to train us to deny ungodliness and worldly actions. So there is this lie in culture that says, if I feel it, then it has to be natural. And if it's natural, then it has to be good. That is called stupidity. And the whole civilization will crash if we believe that. I have a problem with road rage, and you've probably picked that up, and I know I harp on that, but it shows, it's one of the major things that shows the depravity of my heart and my great need for Jesus. One of the many things. I'm driving, somebody passes me in a double yellow line while they're texting and slapping a five-year-old, okay? Like they're just doing everything wrong. You know what I want to do? I want to kill that person. And if I acted on my impulses and had some weapon and something happened, what would happen? I would commit murder. Then my defense would have to be, well, I felt it. And if I felt it, it has to be natural. And if it's natural, then I have to do it. You know what they'll say? 25 to life, bro. That's just, I know that's a hyperbolic, that's a big statement, but that's, that's the logic that we work with. If I feel it, if I feel this sexual attraction, if I feel this want, if I feel this greed, if I feel this feeling, it has to be natural. And if it's natural, then I should act on it. It's right and good. If we lived by what we say that we do, if we live by that logic, society as it would crumble, and there would be chaos. And so here's what we see. The grace of God comes to train us to deny ungodliness and worldly passions, not for them not to exist. Ungodliness, ungodly thoughts, ungodly behaviors, ungodly impulses will rise up in us and worldly passion impulses will rise up in us. The problem is not that those passions exist or they rise up in us. The Bible's not denying that they happen. The thing about grace is this. Grace gives us the power to deny or renounce those things, to say, yes, I know this is here, but I will not act upon it, and I will actively fight it, which can be applied in so many ways. The grace of God trains us to not, re- not to act on our worldly desires and impulses, our strong desires, including sexual desires. 
God has a way, he has mapped out how sexuality is supposed to be lived out. It's seen several times in this, in this, in this passage of scripture where Paul is called, especially elders, but other people in the church, to be sexually moral people, to be, at least especially in the case of the elders, to be one woman type of men. That doesn't mean the impulse is not there, but what it means is that through the grace of God, you've been trained to fight, to wrestle that impulse, the sexual impulse, to try to fulfill your sexual desires outside of the covenant bond of one, mar- one man, one woman in marriage, and and you try to wrestle that desire to the ground and kill it. That's not wrong. That's just what the grace of God can do for you to be able to fight those impulses. That is what the grace of God does. It comes in a, in a training grace to help us renounce ungodliness and worldly passions. If you struggle with ungodliness and passions that are serious, and are difficult to overcome, welcome to the club. Everyone does. The difference between a person who has been saved by the grace of Jesus Christ and those who are not is that we have been trained and are being trained to wrestle that sin to the ground and to deny it. Those who do not have the grace of God in their life, let the sin run amok. And even try to rationalize it as not being sin, just like we talked about. It's natural, therefore it is good. But the grace of God comes and trains us. Now, no training is pleasant. Every war movie has that scene in boot camp. Well, not everyone, but most of them do. And the boot camp scenes, nobody has ever gone, you know, boot camp sounds like fun. You watch one of the war movies, you know, I watch... uh, um, it's like once a year I have to watch Band of Brothers, okay? I don't know, it's just it, World War II juice is flowing, you know? And so I watch about the 101st Airborne. I watch it all the time. In the first several scenes, they are at the, the, um, their training facility in, in Georgia, and they're running up this mountain, and they have this terrible officer. And, you know, I've never thought, you know, boot camp seems like fun. I think that'd be great. I would love for somebody to yell at me. I would love for somebody to come in and... and just all my belongings are in a footlocker. And if I have something that's not in a footlocker, they can make me clean toilets with my toothbrush. That sounds great. And then they're going to get me up in the middle of the night and I'm going to run up a hill with like an 80 pound pack. No one ever says that sounds delightful. But why do they do it? For a purpose so that they can win, so they can fight the war, so they could do what they were called into service to do. That is what the grace of God does. Training is not easy or fun, but it's part of what God has called us to. Salvation is a free gift, but that grace comes with a training grace that helps us to deny ungodliness and worldly passions, which are going to be there. We've got to wrestle them to the ground by God's grace. And then it says this, we're training us not to just do that, but to live. So there's a negative side. If you think Christianity is all don'ts, you've missed the scripture because usually what happens, the Bible tells you a whole bunch of things not to do, and then it tells you a whole bunch of things to do. Go, go and look in the scriptures. When they're, like, especially in Paul. Paul has these lists of things, of sins, and they are a long list of sins. But you know what else he usually has? A long list of virtues or ways that you should behave. It's all throughout the letters. It's in Galatians, it's in Philippians, it's in Colossians, it's in First and Second Timothy. There's always things not to do, and there's always things to do. And so it's Christianity should not just be defined by things we should refrain from, but on what we should do. And so here's what we see. The grace of God, when it appears in our lives, it brings this training so we can renounce worldly or ungodliness and worldly passions, but it also 
it gives us a new lifestyle to live. And here's the lifestyle is seen in verse 12, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age. And three things about that. I want you to notice there's three things he calls us to live. He says self-controlled, which could also be sober-minded. Many of you guys know I went to the University of Florida. You can do what you will with that, okay? I lived in, right behind a bar in front of another bar. You can still go and see this place if you go down on the campus, if you just want to check, fact check my story. Okay, this is right behind the bar called The Swamp. There's a, there's a bar, and then there is a, a post office, and then there was this building I lived, lived under. Or I, lived, I did live under the building. <laughs> I parked under the building. I lived in this building. It's orange and blue with green terraces. It's block, and it is just atrocious, okay? And... A sober person would never think, you know what? I think I'm going to go behind, I'm going to go to the bathroom behind a dumpster. But you know what happened in Gainesville? A bunch of drunk people would regularly. I have to watch where I park my car because sometimes I park, I'm like, oh, somebody's going to the bathroom behind a dumpster. Fantastic. Sober people don't do that. They don't do dumb things like that. They also don't puke in washing machines, which they used to do. You know why? Because they're drunk. And drunk people do dumb things, am I right? Also, they would, one night we came out, and I had, there was a Pepsi machine turned over and a smashed TV right in front of our walkway. Who does that? Drunk people. Sober, sobriety, a self-controlled life, is one that is not controlled by impulses or something else that makes us do dumb things. Or things we wouldn't necessarily do otherwise. A self-controlled life is one that is not controlled or inebriated by something else, but is controlled by God. And so our lives now, if we are under the grace of God, should be self-controlled and sober. It also says that we should live righteous lives, which means, or godly lives, which are upright, it says. And that means that you're, you're seeking after righteousness. The next part about it is that you are supposed to live a godly life, a life that reflects the nature of God. Now, where are we supposed to do this? It says in the present age, in the present age, which is now, which for Titus's readers was the first century on this island of Crete, which was an island known for, for debauchery. Remember, the word, or the island's name is Crete. If you ever heard the word Cretan, which means not a good thing. If someone calls you a Cretan, that is not good. It means a rough, barbaric customer, Okay. That is where they're living in a place where they got the name Cretan. And a lot of times we think that if we just lived in a different environment, that it would be easier for us to live holy, upright lives. But God does not call us to that. He says, in your present age, in your present situation, you are called to renounce ungodliness and to walk uprightly to live a self-controlled, sober life in this time. So many of us have, we have this, what, what some have called the golden age fallacy, okay? Which you look back on time and you're thinking, you know, if I just lived back then, people were better. Salt of the earth back then. And if, if we could just go back to times like that, life would just be better. You know, pre-cell phones, pre-interwebs, if we could just go back to there, life would be better. 
And here's the cool thing what history does. Oh, yeah? The Nixon administration, would you like to live then? Yeah, he committed treason with the Viet Cong, or well, with, the, with Saigon. Huh, that doesn't seem like a great time to live. Oh, oh, the 60s, yeah, civil rights movement. People were in the street spraying down. Other people made an image of God with hoses just because of the color of their skin. Yeah, it was a great time to live. Let's go back even further. Let's go back to the 40s. Oh, yeah, World War II. Let's go back to 1915. Oh, yeah, World War I. Oh, you get this? You can't go back in time and live in another time. And there was not a time where life was easy for a believer to live. Get over it. You live now. And your call is not, I could be a better Christian if it wasn't for the internet. I could be a better Christian if our political climate was not so polarized. I could be a better believer. No, he called you for such a time as this. And we're supposed to live upright, godly lives in the present age. And, the, and you're not supposed to do this on your own. It's the grace of God. The same grace that saves is the grace that trains. And it's, it's his work. And as we, as we try to strive to, to walk, in, walk in faith, he works a work of grace in us so that he trains us to not live ungodly lives, to, be, to go around and, and to live in our passions, but to follow godliness. That is all a work of grace. It's not something we muster up. It's something God works in us that we work out in our lives. And it's for a time as this. And here's the thing. This new lifestyle that we're supposed to live, which is rooted in grace, is also rooted in the gospel. And we gotta remember, when you think grace, you need to think about the good news of Jesus. Look in verse 13. It says this, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our God and Savior Jesus Christ. So we're supposed to live, because of God's grace, we're supposed to live in this, this training grace in which we are to live this new lifestyle where we renounce ungodliness and worldly passions. And now, by God's grace, we live upright, sober, self-controlled lives. In the present age, not wishing for another one, in this age, whatever things we have to deal with in this age, God's grace is at work, and that's how we are sure to walk. And then here is one of the things, here's the, what, how we can live, this is a, what this hope is rooted in, and this lifestyle is rooted in, is the hope waiting for the blessed hope of the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior Jesus Christ. Our hope is this, and what we're rooted in is this, and how we can live this godly life in the present age is that we are waiting with anticipation Jesus' second coming because he promised that if he went, he would come back again and prepare a place for us, and he will make all things right. So our hope, this grace is rooted in this hope, this waiting for Jesus to come back and show who he is so that our lifestyle, even though it looks foolish to those who are perishing, we will see that all of our self-denial and all of our faith was worth it when Jesus comes and our faith is now sight. Now, this idea of waiting is not waiting like if you sit in a doctor's office, okay? Because that kind of waiting it's like you're waiting for something unpleasant usually, okay? This type of waiting is more like you're really hungry and you go to a restaurant and you think, yes, it doesn't look very crowded. And then you walk in 
and it's got a 45-minute wait. And you, everybody in the party is kind of like, hey, let's get out of this. 45 minutes, I hate to wait at restaurants. I will go to a restaurant I don't like, just not wait. I have a problem, okay? And so my wife will tell you that. And so we show up at this restaurant, but you are adamant, like, dude, this restaurant has the best whatever. It has the best steak. It has the best this. And so and you got, you've had a hankering for this restaurant, and you show up at the restaurant, and you know what? You get that little, like, buzzer thing, and you wait. And then you know what you do? You're looking over there, and you're like, I see tables open. And you're about to pick up the bus tray, and start like wiping down with the Clorox rag because you're like, I'm ready to eat. The idea of this waiting word has the idea of expectancy with it, of a longing. So our lifestyle, how that we can deny ourselves now and deny these things, these desires, the ungodliness and the worldly desires and how we can live this upright life is rooted in the grace of God and in the expectancy that Jesus will come and make all things right. But not a, this is an active waiting. This is a expectant waiting. Jesus, come and make all things right. Jesus, come, make all things right. Deal with sin. Deal with the struggles in my heart. Deal with these fights that I have against ungodliness and and my own desires. God, deal with this world and the sin in it. God, come, Jesus, come and show your glory. Our hope and our our grace-filled life, our lifestyle is rooted in the hope that Jesus will one day make our faith sight and all of our struggle and self-denial worth it. Finally, we see this. It's also rooted... Our lifestyle, this new lifestyle, this training grace lifestyle is rooted in the gospel. Because it says in verse 13, we're waiting on this blessed hope. The appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. And then it talks about what Jesus has done. Jesus Christ. Remember, that's not his last name, but that's his position. He's the son of God. And in so doing, he lived the perfect life. But what did he do? He gave himself for us which is talking about his crucifixion. He gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness. Jesus paid the ultimate price on the cross, bearing sin as a substitute so that in him he would buy us back. He would redeem us from sin and its consequences, which was God's wrath forever in hell. And he purchased us from lawlessness, which means us going our own way without regard to God's law. When Christ came and the grace of God appeared, he bought us. and he take, He's taken us from where we should live lawless, that now we should live according to God's law, trying to please him in everything. Jesus, and it goes back to what Paul would say, you were bought with a price, you are not your own. If you just think about that for a second, a lot of times in our American independence, we like to say, I'm my own person, I pick myself up by my bootstraps. Here's the thing, if you have come to understand the grace of God, which God doesn't owe you anything, but he has given you all these things in Christ, which is something you don't deserve, but he lavishes upon you by his grace and you receive by repentance and faith. Now, you no longer belong to you. 
you belong to him. And now you are not created for lawlessness anymore. You were created to live according to the law under grace, which means you don't keep the law, try to earn God's favor. You keep the law, you keep God's, God's ordinances from God's favor, which means like I want to follow you and I want to please you in everything I do and I want to walk in your character. And then it says this, and this is amazing. So when Christ came, he purchased us, he redeemed us from lawlessness, and he came to purify for himself a people for his own possession. He came and he cleaned these people up to be his, his own. We remodeled the house that we live in um, just down the road here. And it had been neglected for some time when we bought it, which was great for us because we got a deal comparative to what it would have been square footage-wise, otherwise. So we got it. It had gray carpet, gray walls, gray ceilings. And the carpet looked like it had been run over with like, you know, one of those, uh, what do they call those things that, uh, a Zamboni, you know, they, they clean the ice with? It's like somebody was driving a Zamboni in there. And then the kids' rooms were it looked like they had murdered the Kool-Aid man. They were all white, and there was like these, it was like a crime scene. Like, they, well, we killed the Kool-Aid man here, and then somebody had shot BB guns all on the wall, and then there was places where you're on the floor, you're like, that shouldn't do that. And so my wife one day is, is cleaning up the kitchen, and she's standing on this, uh, this kind of like ladder thing. It's, it's, it's a little bit, it's kind of what painters use. It's about a couple feet off the ground. And all of a sudden she looks, she goes, man, this floor doesn't seem right. And it goes smack. And the two legs go right through the floor. And the other two legs go right through the floor. And there's a hole in the, in the kitchen floor now. And apparently there was some water damage. And so as, as we all did, we laughed at her after we made sure she was okay. And then we drew on the ground. So still, when they, the, whoever moves in after we leave, God, hopefully it's years and years, okay? <laughs> they're gonna, if they pull up the, the floor, the flooring in the kitchen, they're gonna see, we wrote on the subfloor, Amy's hole. And we're right there and there's an arrow. Underneath, so when we had to fix that, there was this old, we found underneath the house, an old toolbox with all these old tools in it. As you could probably tell, I'm not the most tool-centric person, but my father-in-law is. And when we found that toolbox, it had all sorts of old tools in it, which he took home, and he cleaned up, and they're now in his shop. He had this possession, and he take, took pride in it, and he cleaned it, and now it's something that he's, it's, I see him, he loves old tool, tools, and he prizes it. The cross of Christ, God takes a prized possession, which look, we, we talked about it last week when we, when we looked at Luke 15. God loves lost people. He went after the one sheep and he looked for the coin that was lost, like the lady looked for the coin that was lost. And he finds this, a person who is lost and he fixes his love on them, and he cleanses them through the cross. When you think of the cross, you should think of the purification of sins. Christ went to the cross to shed his blood so that our sins might be covered, and not just so that you can be free of guilt and be with God, but you are now cleaned and are a prized possession, and here's what you should do as a prized possession of God. You are to be zealous for good works. You have probably not used the word zeal or zealous. 
if you have used it, you're probably talking about somebody who is overzealous. But the facts remain. Those who are saved by grace aren't just, aren't just saved. They are now being trained to live godly lives in the present age, hoping, waiting for Jesus to return And while we're waiting, trusting in the finished work of Jesus, knowing that he bought us back from lawlessness so now that we would keep the law to glorify God and he's cleaned us up. He removed us from our sin. He has washed us from all impurity. And with the greatest washing ever, the blood of Jesus. And he did all that so that we would be zealous for good works. And zealous means that you have a overwhelming desire to do what is good, to work for the glory of God and the love of other people. And that is a work of grace. And then I want to ask you this. Most of us have never been described as zealous. We're so worried about being overzealous. Well, that's the overzealous. They're overzealous about their love for Jesus. They're overzealous about their love for their hobby. They're overzealous about their love for the They're overzealous for their love of this. But rarely has it been said, you're overzealous for the work of God in your life. You're overzealous to do good works in Jesus' name. And I want to call you and myself to know this. The grace of God, which is amazing, which was set upon you not when you were good or deserving, but when you were at your lowest, It doesn't just save, it trains you. And it should create this washed people, this people that are right with God, who now want to do good works. You ever notice this? You do your best work when you are loved, not when you're working out of fear. I do. If you, if you, if your boss says, if you screw this up, you're fired. You're going to probably be doing this like this is trembling. Okay, I got to get this right. When you come from a place where of love and respect and what do you do? You do your best work. And here's the good news about the grace of God. When we're talking about, sometimes we get nervous when we talk about grace and works. Here's, here's, what, it, here's what it boils down to. We aren't, should not be zealous for good works to win God's approval. It's already won by the grace of Jesus on the cross. We are to be zealous for good works because God has approved us, because he has bought us, because he has cleansed us, and now we get to go for it. And I wanna, I wanna encourage you, every person in here who has trusted the grace of Jesus, I wanna encourage you to be zealous, to go after good works, to live a life that glorifies God in your job, to live a life that glorifies God in your family, not just to let it happen to you, but to take the lead and to be zealous for it and to, and to go and to love your family and to love your coworkers, and to love the people in your church, and serve people in your church, and serve people at work, and to be zealous, not for God to approve you, but because God has approved of you in Jesus when you didn't deserve it, and now you are cleansed. So be zealous. Go after it. Don't be passive anymore. God has given you a passion. He has trained you for good works, and he is training you for good works. you got to
can do. Go be zealous for it. Go after it. Go after it for the glory of Jesus. Don't, don't, don't let anybody hold you down. It's okay. If they call you overzealous, then you're probably right where you need to be. Because the grace of God is amazing. Amazing grace has become that song that they sing at everything. It's like American Idol, which is coming out. Everybody that thinks they can sing, amazing grace. I mean, they're going to come with it. And sometimes familiarity brings contempt. Listen, Listen to the words of this. It was grace that taught my heart to fear. Fear what? Fear the trouble we are in because of sin and the wrath of God coming. It's grace that taught my heart to fear. And grace, my fears, relieved. And how precious did that grace appear the hour I first believed. And that grace is at work in us if we are in Christ. Not just so we can sing sweetly in the by and by that we have been saved by grace, but also to walk in a life being trained by grace for good works, for the glory of God. So if you're a grace person, and Lord help me, I'm a grace person, then you should be a works person. Because we should be zealous for good works because of God's amazing grace. We're going to pray. We're going to take communion. If you're in Jesus, if you're in Christ, if you have if you know that salvation, if you have trusted Jesus and you have a new life evidenced by good works, we invite you to take communion with us. If you haven't, we're so glad that you're here today because you need the grace of God. And if you turn from your sins, repent, and you trust Jesus, he'll lavish his grace upon you. And so we invite you to trust him in this time. But it's okay to let, if, you have not, if you're not that place where you know Jesus, it's okay to let communion pass because this is just a symbol of the grace of God on the cross of Jesus Christ. So we're gonna invite our communion team to come forward. And as we do that, we're gonna pray and then we'll receive communion together. Father, we're so grateful for your grace to us. Um, we pray today, God, that those who don't know your grace would come by faith to know it. And Father, We pray that those of us who know your grace would walk in it, being trained by the Holy Spirit, zealous for good works, remembering the finished work of Jesus. Thank you, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, Um, would you stand with us? And I want us to be dismissed with this blessing in charge. God has redeemed you from all lawlessness. And he has purified you for himself to be a people for his own possession, zealous for good works. Walk in that grace and put your faith into action. You're dismissed. God bless you.